Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came out, came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat upon the mountain of olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea Flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for there, then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human be being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and, and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will not, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let us pray. Lord Father, we come before you this morning as, as the body, as your body, Lord Father. And we ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word, Lord God, and, and your spirit and truth, that you would lead us, God, in your Holy Spirit and in the fruit of it, Lord God. And we pray that your will would be done, Lord God, and that you would um, lead Jackie in his giving of your message, your word, Lord. And we also lift up the children's ministry, the, the teachers and, and the children, Lord, that you would bless them and their hearts as well, Lord God. Prepare us for the rest of this day that you have given, that you have made, Lord. We pray your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for worshiping with us, guys. See ya. It's nice having the little ones in, being a part of what we're doing. So, you guys got Matthew 24 down? How many of you believe I'm going to get to verse 35? Oh, Lord, have mercy. You guys are so cute. Yeah, oh, I'll get there. Yeah, you're right. I'll get there. When is the question? <clears throat> I have a lot of uh, questions for you guys that I want you to ponder like we did in the past. The first one is this. Will you trade the truth for certainty? You should write that down somewhere. Will I trade the truth for certainty? Because this is what we do when we choose systems. <clears throat> um, I, am, I, I have been charged multiple times with being Reformed or a Calvinist, but I'm not. I'm going to tell you why. The five points of Calvinism, in my reckoning, make God duplicitous. And God teaches us that he hates lying scales, dishonest scales. And God says, I hate them because they are duplicitous. They look like they're telling you one thing, but they're telling you something else, right? You know, if you were weighing something, you're afraid I'm going to, if you'd have brought me a monster, that would have been better. Was that bad? Oh, man. <laughs> I hear all the moans from the crowd. I was like, oops, I'm sorry, hon. Thank you for the water, babe. You're amazing. <clears throat> A preacher can be taught. Okay, God says he doesn't like dishonest scales. So if you go to exchange a certain weight of one thing for a certain weight of another, the scales should be truthful. Right? It says in Proverbs 11.1, 1, a false balance is an abomination to God. A false balance is an abomination to God. Jackie, what does that have to do with you not being a Calvinist? Well, if God says, I want you to repent and then denies you the ability to repent, it's false scales. So, I... I want to be clear. I will not trade the truth for certainty. Trust me, if I took the system and I just said, I'm just going to take that whole system, everything it says, and I'm going to just accept it all, my life gets easier. I look at people who are hard and I can just say, you know, you're just a reprobate. There's no hope for you. And I'm going to stop worrying about you. But... God's word won't let me do that. Now, I also want to say, I love all my Calvinist friends. I have a lot of Calvinist friends. The vast majority of the books I use for study are written by Reformed guys. You know why? Because they care enough to actually spend the time doing the study and writing the books. And so, I'm not, when I say I reject the system, it doesn't mean I reject everything out of it. I don't reject the people, and I don't reject some of their teaching. I'm good. Nobody is always wrong, and just so you know, nobody is always right. That's a human. God is the only one who gets me right all the time. God is always right. And we sit down here and we fumble over trying to understand how that looks in reality. Okay? So I want you guys, I want you guys to understand that. I, when I talk about I don't like systems, doesn't mean the whole system. I want to throw the whole system out. I, I hate the whole system. It's all bad. And some people make that mistake. And I honestly believe that the church of Jesus Christ is better served by having Members that have a wide variety of views, 
that, so that we can sit down and have discussions and grow thereby. And if we don't, if we live in an echo chamber, you are weak. And if your views cannot withstand being outside of the echo chamber, they don't deserve to be your views. When I went to Bible college, I was introduced in Bible college to the concept of textual criticism. And I thank God for the professor that I had because he wasn't like most of the other people. So I'll come back to him in a minute. But what most people did with textual criticism, you guys know what textual criticism is? If you don't, I'm sorry, but you really need to know. So listen, we have an opportunity for people to be discipled. And the greatest need in the church today is for people to be discipled. So if you think, I don't need to be discipled, and I don't need to know this stuff, and I don't need to understand about the Lord, then I'm not sure you are a Christ follower. Because a Christ follower wants to understand who Christ is, and what, what he's doing, and how he's moving. And we don't assume we have it all figured out. Right? So we come together and we say, I need to understand this. I need to recognize what is, what is textual criticism all about? I'll tell you, I have a book on my desk that was given to me by somebody who came to me and said, Jackie, don't you realize that all these other versions of the Bible, they are an abomination to God because they're trying to strip God from his holiness. You guys ever heard this argument? Well, good. Don't ever watch YouTube. It'll save you a lot of time. They say, look, if you, if you read this version or this version or this version of the Bible... Typically, they're the newer translations. They come from something called the Alexandrian text. And they say, this is all, there's a conspiracy to, to rid God of his holiness. Do you, will you trade the truth for certainty? You can buy that system. And you can say, I'm only going to read the King James version of the Bible because it's the most correct. But none of the things you're saying are true. You're just certain of them. Do you understand? I have this book and it says, now I'm going to tell you the truth. I promise I will not. I will always tell you the truth. I will always tell you. I'm not going to tell you my version of the truth. I'm just going to tell you the truth. The truth is manuscript evidence of the Bible shows that the Bible grew from the beginning to what we have today by 10%. What? Hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the Bible is not inerrant. I say the Bible is inerrant. Well, how's that work? Let me explain it to you. When Mark wrote his gospel, there's a section in Mark's gospel where he uses a personal pronoun so much it will make you crazy. He, 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 he. And eventually, one of the guys who copied Mark's gospel said, we need to put in who he is every once in a while. So they changed the he for Jesus. That is a textual variant. You don't have to be afraid of it. It's true. Later on, another guy came and says, you can't just call him Jesus. You got to call him the Lord Jesus. So they added the Lord Jesus. And then, through time, another guy said, you can't just call him the Lord Jesus. You have to call him the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, some of the newer translations, when we, because when the King James Version came out, there was only seven Greek manuscripts. There are 5,280 Greek manuscripts. That's truth. And of the 5,280 Greek manuscripts, many of them are older than what was used when we did the King James Version. Now, the great news is there's not a big difference. But what the new translations did is they went back to the older ones that said, He. And then some preacher who thought he would take it upon himself to make sure the people didn't want to read a particular version or another version develops a YouTube site and tells everybody, look, there's a conspiracy. These people who are doing these new translations are trying to strip the Lord of his holiness. They take out the Lord 
and they take out his name and they take out Christ. My question is, do you want to trade the truth for certainty? Because uh, sometimes it's easier. Look, I'm just going to use the King James only and then we're good. Right? Or we can say, I don't have to be afraid of the truth because the word of God declares that Jesus Christ is the way, the and the life. Right? Everything God says is true. That's the best definition of truth I've ever, I ever come across. We did it this last weekend. We did that conference. We had that conference going this last weekend. And back in one of the breakout sessions, it was kind of hard to pick which breakout you're going to go to. But one of the ones I went to gave a dif- definition of truth. And I liked it. He said, truth is whatever God says. Oh, I'm good with that. Are you okay with that? Well, sometimes God says things that are hard. Are you still okay with it? Will you trade the truth for certainty? So uh, so I heard all this when I was in Bible college. And I was like, yeah. And that was my view in 2009. Yeah. What's wrong with these people Never mind, I couldn't find the people who were the conspiracy guys. It was just them. You know, those people who chose what books are in the Bible? You ever heard that one? You know, those people? Those people don't exist. It was not the Council of Nicaea that picked the books of the Bible. It drives me crazy when you, I, I watch something and somebody says, the Council of Nicaea, they left out the Gospel of Thomas. No, the Gospel of Thomas is an abomination. And the only reason you don't know it is because you haven't read it. Read it if you think I'm crazy. I'm not afraid of the truth. And I will not trade the truth for certainty. And so in my pursuit of understanding textual criticism, I won't spend a lot of time on this. My intro is way too long, and I got a long ways to go, 35 verses. I, I just really need you guys to understand all these things for, our, for what we're jumping into. I really want you to understand them. So I bought all that, and then I started researching And I found experts in the field of textual criticism. And I read their books. Whether they're on the approved book list or not, I don't care. They're the experts. Tell me how this works. And uh, and they were both in agreement. And I worked my way through and I understood, oh, you know what? I don't have to be afraid because God said, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. But my word, is that truth? So why are we afraid of the truth? His word didn't pass away. There's not one instance in all the volumes of textual criticism where his word passed away. If anything ever was changed or doubted, it was an addition, not a subtraction. Why does that matter? Because then I know I can trust what I have sitting on my lap in front of me. Because people have gone through it. God chose to preserve his word through this incredible wealth of information, not a lack of it. How many of you know if you have a hundred piece puzzle and you have 110 pieces, you can still put it together? How many of you know if you have a 100-piece puzzle, but you only have 90 pieces, you have a problem? Do you understand the difference? Okay, that's the short version of what textual criticism is about. But it still makes us ask the question, will I trade the truth because I don't like it for something that's more palatable? For something I can say, oh, I like this better. So I want to trade the truth for certainty. 
Jackie, what does any of this have to do with Matthew 24? I was trained to only read and listen to Calvary Chapel pastors. They're the most correct. <laughs> but this creates an echo chamber. Look, I'm just telling you the truth. Where none of your ideas are challenged. It is trading the truth for certainty. I'm going to give you an example today. It's going to matter as we work our way through Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, verse 34, Jesus said, Truly I say unto you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I was taught that that section of Scripture was about Israel becoming a nation. And that the generation who saw Israel become a nation would not pass away until the Lord returned. 1948, Israel became a nation. So the first book that hit the scene was Why Christ is Returning in 1988. What year is it? You guys ever hear that before? Okay. That is the worst example of hermeneutics I have ever been a part of. Because in verse 21, if I say the fig tree represents Israel, I'm sorry, in chapter 21, if I say the fig tree represents Israel, why didn't two chapters before represent Israel. You remember what happened to that fig tree? Jesus came to the fig tree and he said, there's no fruit on this fig tree. And so what did he do? He cursed it. And he said, fruit will never again be on this tree. But nobody says that was Israel. That is a lack of consistency in a hermeneutic choosing symbolism for a, an illustration that you're not consistent with across even the single book. So that hermeneutic, that's bogus. And now, today, most teachers don't say that. If you've heard it, it's either somebody listening to someone's old stuff, or it's an old recording of them. Because nowadays, that's not, what, that's not how they frame it. Why does that matter? Because when we look at the things that Scripture lays out for us, what we need to do is not be afraid of what does it say and what's going on, what's, what's happening. What is, what it, for me, it's, I, I tend to fall toward something called Occam's Razor. You guys ever heard of that? Occam's razor is the idea that usually the simplest explanation is the right one. Now, oftentimes I get accused of having complicated answers. But I don't think they're that complicated. <laughs> Neither does anybody else, right? So we want to have the freedom to explore and to understand what is, what is happening. Because this verse, Matthew 24, 34, is important. Because how you define this generation tells us how to interpret the whole chapter of Matthew 24. Is Matthew 24 for the future? Is it our future? Or is it our past, their future? Those are two different things. And it matters. It'll make a difference. And it is about this spot where I start to veer off of approved Calvary Chapel teaching. Just so you know, that's going to matter. If it doesn't matter today, it will matter next week or the week after. But there will be a price to pay Right? I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, 
but we're Calvary Chapel because I'm Calvary Chapel. If, if Jackie pulls off of official Calvary Chapel doctrine, Big Calvary will call Little Calvary and say, what's wrong with you? And Little Calvary will say, I'm not going to trade the truth for certainty. So what that, what that means to you guys is, you know, depends on, on what you want to do next. What it means to me is, and this is my commitment to you all, I'm going to teach the truth, and I, I honestly don't care if you like it, because I have to answer to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to stand before him for what I teach, and I'm not going to teach something I disagree with just because, well, that's where my paycheck comes from. To be honest, I'd rather be right with God. And I hope you would too. So, you ready for Matthew 24? <laughs> I don't know if you're ready, but here we go. We're going to jump into it. And I want you guys, <clears throat> I want you guys to listen. This is important. It's important because we're about to get kicked in our tradition. It kicks my tradition. Same as I've been doing this 25 years. 25 years I've been teaching this. So for me to say, you know what, I'm pulling off of that and I'm looking at this in a different way is not a little thing. So I, want, I really want you to understand that. Okay, so what does it mean? It means that I believe that the whole of Matthew 24 addresses a future tribulation to those that Jesus was speaking to. All these things that, are, that he's talking about in this scripture are going to happen within the generation he's speaking to. That language is everywhere in Matthew, and that hermeneutic is consistent. I mean, every time Matthew uses the phrase, this generation, you know who he's talking to? The generation he's talking to. Every time. And I cannot see why to make an exception when I come to chapter 24, because it fits my, my views of eschatology better. So let's be truthful with what the word declares. And we're in verse 15. We probably, we might make it to verse 16. So <clears throat> let's talk about verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, what's the next phrase? <clears throat> Let the we reader understand. Why did he put that down? Okay, he wants us to know this is, this is something that's written about, right? Who wrote about it? He told us. Daniel. How many times, good students of the Bible, does Daniel talk about the abomination of desolation? <laughs> You're cheating. A lot is not a good answer. <clears throat> He's going to talk about it in three chapters. He's going to talk about it in chapter 9. He's going to talk about it in chapter 11. And he's going to talk about it in chapter 12. Now the question for the student of the Bible is, are all three of those the same thing? I'm going to give you the answer so you don't have to figure it out, but you're welcome to test me. The answer is no. They're not all the same thing. Daniel 9 is probably one that you're familiar with. 9.27. And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. And after half a week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering 
And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That's the part in Daniel 9 that talks about an abomination of desolation. Now, if you've done Daniel with us, you've heard me go through Daniel's 70 weeks, the 77s of Daniel. When you're studying it this week, getting ready for what we're going to discuss next week as we continue through Matthew 24, I'm going to ask you to read the 70 weeks of Daniel, and I'm going to ask you to tell me why, when you read the 70 weeks of Daniel, we put a parenthesis, or we have put a parenthesis, between 26 and 27. Usually what we teach, 483 years unto the Messiah. And you you calculate the 62 sevens and the seven sevens. And you will come to 69 weeks to take us to the Messiah. And then when Daniel's talking about the Messiah, what's he say about the Messiah? The Messiah shall be what? Karat. Cut off. He's going to be put to death. Is that what happened to Jesus? He was put to death. But the prophecy keeps going. And traditionally, we stop there. And we say, now we're in a parenthesis. And that parenthesis has lasted to today. It's the only way in the Bible you can have seven years left, which becomes what? The Great Tribulation. What I want you to ask yourself is, why? I'm not saying it's wrong. I want you, when you read Daniel 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel, I want you to tell me why in the 70 weeks of Daniel do we stop counting straight. Okay? It's a good, it's a good practice for you. Don't worry. We'll still talk about it. But I want you guys to ask yourselves a question. That's one time, abomination of desolation. Second one. Daniel eleven thirty one, And forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and will take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. That's Daniel eleven thirty one. Daniel eleven thirty one is one we absolutely know when it occurred. Daniel eleven thirty one occurred with Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. We absolutely can see it in history. In fact, Daniel chapter 11 is so incredible, most critics of the Bible say it has to be history. It can't be prophecy because it's too exacting. The king of the north and the king of the south, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies fighting back and forth, going battle by battle by battle. Let me just, I'm just going to talk to you about what occurred in the abomination of desolation? Because I don't have time to do a whole thing on Daniel again. But here, here's what Antiochus did. He sacrificed pigs on the altar in the Holy of Holies within the temple. He required the Jews to take part in the worship of Bacchus, the god of wine. The forces of Antiochus stood as guards at the temple during regular worship and the sacrifices were discontinued. On the Sabbath day, the city was attacked and multitudes were killed. His army occupied the citadel overlooking the temple. Heathen idolatry was made mandatory and enforced upon the Jews. The erection uh, of the image of Zeus in the Jewish temple on the altar of burnt offering, he attacked and slaughtered Jew, the Jews. Some Jews yielded. They surrendered and were part of what he was doing. But a godly group of Jews, the Hasdians, who were the forerunners of the scribes and the Pharisees, you've heard of them, right? They stood for the law. One of them's name was Judas Maccabeus. 
He had a nickname, The Hammer. If you're going to have a nickname, that's the one you want. You don't want the nickname, uh, The Nerf Ball, right? <laughs> if you want a nickname, you want to be called The Hammer. Very manly nickname. Son of Matthias, he led a successful revolt against the Syrians, and he brought relief from the persecution. But his successes were not permanent. And eventually, that group of people that become the Pharisees reached out to a people called Rome and said, Help! The children of Israel went back into the land after the Medes and the Persians, during the Medo-Persian Empire, the second empire in the book of Daniel. They rebuilt the temple. This is a temple that's been defiled now. <clears throat> By the Greeks, which was the third kingdom in Daniel's statue. Then in order to be relieved from the Greeks, they reached out to the Romans. That's the fourth kingdom in the statue. You remember the statue, right? The fourth kingdom. Something happens during the fourth kingdom. Do you know what it is? A rock not cut out with hands comes from the heavens and destroys the kingdoms of men. What did they call Jesus? The chief of the, the cornerstone which the builders did what? Rejected? Has become the chief of the corner? Oh. They reached out to the Romans. The Romans come and from that point the Romans didn't leave until the time of Christ. They were still there. They were still a part of it all. The temple area was defiled and cleansed. The cleansing is what they celebrate as Hanukkah today, right? The oil burned long enough for them to remake the oil. The oil was supposed to take eight days. They only had one day's worth of oil, and it miraculously burned for eight days so they could make more oil. That's the miracle of Hanukkah. They were under the controls of the Greeks. They were under the controls of Rome. Herod finished doing the remodeling of the temple in 64 AD. And in 70, the temple was destroyed. And there has not been a temple since. That's the second mention. That one we know, 167 B.C., we know when that happened. History tells us. And the, the prophecy in Daniel is spot on. Then we have Daniel 12, 11 through 13. And from the time of the regular burnt offering, when it's taken away, the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There will be 1,290 days. That's one month over three and a half years. Blessed is he who waits and arrives until the 1,335 days. What's that? I don't know. Hey, just so you know, neither does anybody else. We can take stabs at it, but nobody knows how the numbers at the end of Daniel work. There are theories, but we don't know. Okay, 1,235. Uh, 90 days, then we have 1,335 days, but go your way to the end and you will rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Those are the three mentions of the abomination of desolation. Jesus says, <clears throat> Matthew 24, he says, look, here's all the non-signs. Remember we talked about them two weeks ago. Wars, rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. These are all signs and symbols we talked about of God's judgment on a nation. That they're happening when God judges the nation. You want to read through the prophets, you can read these same, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You remember the four horsemen? Deceit, war, famine, pestilence. Deceit, war, famine, pestilence. You know how many times those, those come up in the prophets? When God's judging nations, sometimes when God's judging Israel, sometimes when he's judging Babylon, sometimes when he's judging Judah, sometimes when he's judging Tyre, it doesn't matter. Those things will come up. He says, Here's the, these are not the signs of the end. Remember what he said? 
When you see these things, just know these are the beginning of birth pangs and the end is not yet. Okay? And then he says in verse 15, when you see this, now you have a sign. Now you have a sign. Now when we look at those three mentions of the abomination of desolation, the two that we don't know where to put them in history, the traditional way of looking at it is we have 69 weeks that have been completed at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and there's a 70th week left to happen. That ends up being the seven years of the tribulation. And in the middle of that, somewhere, the abomination of desolation will happen in a temple that doesn't exist yet. Right? That's a view. There's another view that says the 70 weeks run concurrent. That the person that we used to look into the 70 weeks of and say, that is the uh, Antichrist. This other view says, no, that's Jesus Christ. They do it like this. The one who puts an end to sacrifice and offering, that was Jesus on the cross. You've read the book of Hebrews, right? Is there any other offering besides the blood of Jesus? Is there something that can say besides Jesus? There's nothing else, right? So they say Jesus, he is the one who put an end to, to, I'm not saying this is right, I'm just saying this is a view. He put an end to sacrifice and offering. And three and a half years after that, they say the 70 year, the 77s were completed when the gospel message stopped going out to only the Jews. In Acts chapter 10, it went to the Gentiles. Okay? So they say this is the whole, this is the totality. I'm not saying it's right, I'm saying it's a view. You guys, are you guys hearing me? Well, I hope you're hearing me. If that view is correct, the abomination of desolation happened in A.D. 70. And when the abomination of desolation happened in A.D. 70 and the temple was destroyed, that this, is, this was God's judgment that he spoke about in Matthew 23, that he's going to pour out all the blood of righteous Abel to, to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, is going to come on this generation. You remember? So if that view's right, then all of that is poured out on that generation. And there are a couple of possibilities I, I just want you to think about. Just think about them. Possibility number one. The day after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, when the first priest walked into the temple and offered up an offering to God, that was an abomination. Oh, that's a weird idea. Well, is there anything that we might say, well, how, how would we... How would we come up with that idea? Where, where would we, where could we see that? Ezekiel chapter 5 verse 9. And I want to say there's another spot in Ezekiel. He talks about all the abominations of the, I'll find it in a minute, of all the children of Israel because he said, I hate your offerings. This is Ezekiel speaking about Jerusalem before it was, uh, before it goes into uh, captivity or is destroyed by the Babylonians. So you guys know Jerusalem's been destroyed more than by the Romans, right? It was destroyed by the Babylonians, right? There was a rebuilding, destroyed again by the Romans, and it's not there. But one of the things God said through the prophet Ezekiel is, your offerings are an abomination to me. Wow. Why? Because their offerings were given inappropriately, right? Their hearts were surrendered to other idols. They were just going through the motions. They were not obeying 
the word of the Lord. They weren't following the word of the Lord. And so God said through the prophet Ezekiel, your offerings are an abomination. Maybe, maybe that's the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet from Daniel 9 or from Daniel 12. Okay, It doesn't require Daniel 9 to be like I said. You still have Daniel 12 mentioned, right? <clears throat> There's another possibility. The other possibility is, maybe you don't know, but in, in 66, the, toward the end of the destruction of the temple, someone called the Zealots took over the temple ground. And when they took over the temple ground, you know what they did? They slaughtered all the priests. What does blood do? Spilled blood? They slaughtered the priests on the temple grounds. They killed them all. Because they wanted to start the end of days. The zealots wanted to see God deliver the nation of Israel... Like he was promising in Ezekiel 38. And so God's going to show up and he's going to drive out the, the Romans. And so they slaughtered the priests. They set up their, their fortress in the holy place. Is it lawful for murderers to set up business in the holy place? So on the wing of abominations shall be one that makes... Desolate. That's what Daniel 9 says. Now, Daniel 12 says, but blessed is he who, who endures, right? Who, who makes it to the end, to the 1290 days. Who makes it through the three and a half years that, of the war of the Jews and the battle that took place on the Temple Mount and all those things that were happening up there. Let me ask you a question. How did the Jews survive the destruction of 70 AD. You know there's still Jews today. How did the Jews survive? Do you know how the Jews survived? So in Acts chapter 2, Peter went out to the temple and he preached about Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, who you murdered. And you remember it says the spirit of God moved through the through the disciples and through the apostles, and the hearts of the people were smitten, and they cried out, what must we do to be saved? And what did Peter say? Repent and, repent and believe. He says, repent and believe. Be baptized for the remission of your sins that God's going to deliver you. And it says, how many were added that first message? And then later on, they do it again. Where are they at? They're in Israel. Where? Specifically, they're in Jerusalem. And while they're preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, what happens next? Jews are at another 5,000 come. Now you have 8,000. You think those are the only Jews that got saved? You know what interesting thing happened to all the Jews who came to Christ? who entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith, which, by the way, is the only way anybody ever entered into a relationship with God. All the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, it says Abraham did what? He believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. So, you have this group of Jews who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, to whom Jesus Christ gave a prophecy from Matthew 24 and Luke 21. You ever read Luke? Luke's a little more clear. When you see your enemies surrounding you, he doesn't use abomination of desolation. Luke just says, when you see the enemies surrounding you, get out. Don't go down. Don't do anything else. When you see the zealots slaughter all the priests, don't go down and gather your stuff. Don't pack your things. What is the next thing that he said? In verse 16, then let those who are, who are where? In Judea, flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop, don't go take what's in your house. Let the one who's in the field, 
not turn back and take his cloak. What's he say to them? Get out, get out, get out. What were the zealots saying? What were the patriotic Jews who had rejected Christ as their Messiah? What were they saying? No, God's going to deliver us. He's going to deliver us. What were they saying in the Babylonian captivity? Jeremiah is standing there and he's saying to the people, just surrender and live. And the people are like, no, God's going to deliver us. God's going to deliver us. Which one was right? Yeah. Is the Lord always right? Even when Jackie's wrong. Lord's always right. So the Roman army came and surrounded Jerusalem. And then history tells us they backed off. And when they did, all the Christians, all the Jews who trusted Christ as their Messiah left. When we read through scripture, when God judges the nation of Israel, who does he always save? How many times have you seen the remnant in scripture? More than one time? More than two times? Three times? You remember when Elijah runs into the cave and he's in the cave and he's saying, Lord, I don't know what we're going to do. I'm the only faithful one you have left. Right? You guys remember the story. And the Lord said, uh, look, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Two messages by the disciples had 8,000 saved. And by the way, every time they told the disciples to stop preaching, they did, of course, right? They were very obedient to the governing authorities. They just did whatever the governing authorities have said. When, the, when they told them, you can't preach in the name of Jesus, they said, oh, we're sorry. We won't do that anymore. What did they do? They said, look, you can, you can kill us, but we're going to keep doing this. And the Spirit of God kept moving. Just like Jeremiah standing in the streets crying to the people, repent, you don't have to die. You had 12 Jeremiah's. Standing on the corners, yes, 12. You remember, they picked another fella. Uh, don't argue with me. They picked another fella. And they're, and wait. Do you know how many years from the Olivet Discourse to the destruction of the temple? 40. How long is a generation? Ooh, that's, that's going to be a problem. This generation will not pass until all these things have happened. Now, please hear me. Before you start panicking, don't panic. It's way too early to panic. Don't panic. You have heard me tell you on multiple occasions, pattern is prophecy. Just because some prophecies have been fulfilled does not mean all prophecy has been fulfilled. Do you understand? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. You guys familiar with the text? Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered unto him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind, or alarmed either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God and proclaims that he is God. I didn't say that happened. Did you hear me say that happened? But that does not mean that when we look at Matthew 24 and we work our way through the text, that we cannot see the things that Matthew 24 talks about occurring 
in A.D. 70. The, the, the believing church, the Jewish believing church scattered. You read about it in Acts. I'm not saying you got to go to a history book. You read about it in Acts. You remember when Stephen was killed? What did it say about the church? People started moving, right? They're like, I don't know. If I want to die here in, in Jerusalem, I'm out. And so they went to a lot of other places, and churches sprang up, and they started going out. And, and pretty soon you have a fellow named Paul, who his whole ministry went to the Jew first, and then... Isn't that crazy? Why? Because God is calling his nation, his chosen people, to faith. Come to me. I'm, I want to save you. Because Paul declared in Romans chapter 11 that all of Israel will be saved. And we know that doesn't mean every Jew. Paul made that declaration earlier in, in the book of Romans. He says, don't just assume because you're born a Jew, you're going to be part of the remnant. It is all those of faith. It doesn't matter which view you have. Even if you were a, a dispensational premillennialist and you said, Jackie, I disagree with all that stuff and this is all future, you still have Israel in the tribulation period. Two-thirds of Israel is going to die. That two-thirds is not saved. And then eventually they're going to recognize Jesus as their Messiah and they're going to call on his name. The only difference is I'm suggesting maybe that happened. And maybe when they called on the name of the Lord, there became one family of God where there is neither Jew or Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, man or woman. We are all one in Christ, man. And I'm definitely not saying, thus saith the Lord. I'm just saying, when we spend some time studying and turning over rocks and thinking outside of our system, it's okay to go, man, I don't know if I can make that work with Scripture the way I thought it worked before. And we can recognize that there are some other ideas. And then instead of us saying, you know what, you're crazy and I'm, not, I'm never going back to that church. Jackie is off his rocker on what he's talking about. Which people have told me, it won't be the first person who told me that, just so you know. When the church does that when the church just puts up walls, builds a moat, divides, cuts one another off? We're all weaker because of it. We're all weaker. You don't have to agree with me. And I'm not even sure I agree with me. I'm just, I just want the freedom to explore it and talk about it. And not say, oh, you're not allowed to think that thought. You're not allowed to read that book. You're not allowed to think this way. Because I'm not afraid of the truth. Whatever it is, God wants me to understand it even more than I want to. Don't you think? And I don't think my Father in Heaven, if I ask Him for bread, will give me a stone. Or if I ask him for fish, will give me a serpent. It doesn't mean I'll have perfect understanding. But I think when we call on the name of the Lord, guide me, show me, open my eyes, help me see, we can all be strengthened together by working it out. I'd like to make that journey. I'd like to take it. I have coffee every Monday morning with the pastor, right? I bet I have a lot of people tomorrow. <laughs> or I have nobody, one or the other. <laughs> That's possible. I hope, I'm, I really am not trying to freak everybody out, and I'm not trying to make everybody run, but I don't want to just preach something because that's how I have to do it. I want to I preach 
but I think the word is teaching. And so we're going to, we'll go much faster next week, I promise. But there's no good way for me to introduce some of these ideas without taking a little bit of time. Okay? So, so we'll, I will actually probably finish Matthew 24. Probably not. <laughs> I, will get to, I will get to verse 35 for sure. But we're, we'll go much quicker but I just want you to be thinking. I'm not, I'm not saying accept what I say or do what I say. Here's what I'm saying. Be a Berean. Don't just take the party line and say this is how it has to be. Even, when you, even if it's a little spooky, we don't have to be afraid of the truth. Amen? Why don't you stand? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we just uh, thank you that we are part of the body of Christ. And as part of the body of Christ, we are made up of many members. And as we are many members, Lord, I pray that we would have a desire to dwell together, to be together, to challenge one another's ideas, but to still be brothers and sisters who care for one another and love one another. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. We need to know. We can know don't have to be afraid we don't have to trade the truth off we don't have to say the truth doesn't matter and we don't have to say I'm not going to tell you these things because I don't want to confuse you I just want to tell you what I believe and that's all there is God I pray that you make us men and women who want to know your word who want to know what your word is teaching because I believe you're clear. I'm not saying we can't know. But Lord, sometimes the hardest things for us to overcome are our presuppositions. The positions we already are, are sure we're right about. Sometimes we're not. There was a time I just knew for sure that the gifts of the Spirit they're gone. And now I know. No, they're not. The Holy Spirit is here. He's guiding. He's moving. He's working. God still heals. The gifts we see in Scripture still exist. We don't have to be afraid of them. We don't have to cut them out and put them on a shelf somewhere and say, we're not going to do that. We want to know you in spirit and in truth. <clears throat> when you went before the Samaritan woman, Lord, she asked you, which mountain shall we worship on? All the way back in John chapter 4, Jesus said to her, the day is coming when you will not worship on either mountain because the nation's going to be gone soon. But... Father desires those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. You don't need a mountain. Why don't we need a mountain? Because Jesus Christ is our mountain. Why don't we need a temple? Because Jesus Christ is our temple. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. The body of Christ is the temple of God. When we get to Revelation 22 and we read, it says there's no temple there. Why? Because we're with Jesus. We don't need a temple. We have him. And we will be with him forever. There is a day coming. Maybe today. That Jesus will return. That we will see his face. That all the battle will be over. But if it's not this day, we need to live this day 
in perfect readiness for that day until we see him face to face. We have a purpose and a role, and God, I pray that you would help us do our purpose and that role. And we will give you all the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time of prayer as we do at the